0: Well, good morning, Providence North. Grateful to be with you here at our online service. We are actually going to be taking a break um, in Romans 8. We'll jump back in next week, but we wanted to, uh, I wanted to uh, just take a, a survey of the Bible, if you will, here this morning and talk about what it is that God most desires for us. And so we're going to be looking at a very old um, phrase, something that was written back in the 1600s that really changed um, my view of how God sees me and how I interact with him. And it all started uh, when I was very early on in ministry. Uh, I had a mentor of mine who um, was a former Navy SEAL, and he began meeting with me, and we began studying the scriptures together. We would meet on uh, Wednesday mornings real early over breakfast, and he was um, uh, had, had a family. He was here in the woodlands, uh, but had a long career as a, a Navy SEAL, and uh, and he would share with me different stories. And we would walk, we were walking through a book together. And I remember one time he was talking about really what the goal of a Navy SEAL was, what they were tasked with doing, and their goal essentially as a SEAL that was in combat was to enter. Um, enemy lines, essentially go into enemy lines. They would go in with very small crews. They wouldn't make a big hoopla. They would go in very quietly and they would set free those who were uh, oppressed, those who were had been taken captive or they would just, their goal was to uh, wreak havoc on those who oppressed those that they were trying to set free. So kind of a cool, just kind of, uh, understanding of what he did is, you know, he often talked about, he goes, we well, you know, you got to think about it. When we, as Navy SEALs would go in, we don't ever take prisoners. And so these were some, some pretty bad dudes right here. They were like, they're training all that he had seen, all that he'd walked through. But essentially he was getting me to understand, we were just singularly focused on the mission at hand. Um, we didn't have a lot of ancillary things that we would do we were we were sent in to do one very specific thing uh, and uh, and most of the time it was to wreak havoc on the enemy that had something that they needed or someone that they wanted and they went to go set that captive free and bring home that which was theirs and through this lens um, he said you know you've he, he, I remember him talking to me over breakfast. You've got to have one singular goal and singular focus as well when it comes to your walk with the Lord. And he said, you've got to understand why God put you on this planet. And you need to understand what that means for you. And you need to, you need to flesh that out and step forward with the context in which you're living with that one singular purpose. Um, and then over the course of the next few months, um he began to introduce me to what he would describe as the biblical calling of every believer. And he introduced me to this, this phrase called the chief end of man. And uh, is not something I was very familiar with as a 20-something-year-old just starting off in ministry, believing that God had called me into the ministry, but really, really beginning to define what that meant in my life. And he began... Uh, to help shape that and help me understand that and gave me a biblical um, point of view for all of this. And really, this idea, the chief end of man, is not something new that he made up. It's something very old. In fact, this phrase comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which was written in 1648 and has been used uh, to ground the human heart and mind with the heart of God for nearly 400 years and has helped guide the church and here it is if you don't know it if you don't know if you're not familiar with this what the chief end of man is meaning what is it that you're supposed to be doing uh, I encourage you to write this down to think about this to let it just um, sit on you uh, say it out loud so you can hear yourself articulate it um, because it 's powerful it's short but it 's powerful. and here it is. the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever it's that simple but it 's very profound. The chief end of man, meaning what why are you here? Why am I here is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so this is, the, this is the way the old theologians w- would, would, would say and would cling to to explain why it is we're here, what we're doing, what our foundational purpose in life is. And it's not secondary things. I remember Mike, when he would sit down and meet with me as a young man in ministry, he said, you're going to have people tell you a hundred different things of what you should and shouldn't be doing in your call to pastor and love God. He said, it can be, and if you're not careful, your relationship with God is going to be um, a mile wide and an inch deep. He said, you need to focus in on th- on what really is going to matter, what's really going to get you through um when suffering happens, when uh, things that are unknown begin to pop up in your life. And you really need to understand what the main point of your life is and where you're headed and what you're going and where you're going. And he says our primary call is to glorify God first. It's not to go do all these secondary things. Not just be even a good person. Your primary calling is not just to be a good parent. Your primary calling is not just to uh, fill your bank account with money so that you can be comfortable. Your primary calling is not to build a successful business so that you can hang your hat on your achievements. Your primary calling is not to do all of these other even good things that we get distracted with. The primary calling is that we would glorify God, who is ultimate, and that we would enjoy him forever because in him is where we find our true joy if we look for it in all the other places besides him will always be left empty and so for the rest of our time here this morning all I want to do is simply take a survey of the bible and see is this really here in the bible this idea is is why we are on planet earth as people as human beings is it really to glorify god and enjoy him forever do we see that in the scriptures and so what this is going to do is it's going to show us and what i what i'm trying to accomplish here is that we would as god's people have a god-centric view of our world not a me-centric view of our world. If we have a me-centered view of our world, we just add God into our plan and our purpose where he becomes convenient, and we leave him out where he's not. The Bible is not written in that fashion. Um, The way the Bible talks about God is that he is the main point. He is the primary mover. He is creator. He is everything. And so I want us to just walk through Uh, what the scriptures say, and let that ground us because if you begin to see God through that lens, not as an add-on to your life, but that um, he is ultimate and our main goal is to glorify him, it changes everything that we do. It changes how we think. It changes how we parent. It changes how we speak to our spouse. It changes um, how we work even. Uh, Jack Hidgen's, is a popular author. He was once asked, <clears throat> if you could tell the younger version of yourself something, what would you tell him? And he thought for a moment and he said um, that he would tell himself when you get to the top, realize there's nothing there. Meaning all of our accomplishments that we think will satisfy ultimately don't measure up to what we think they're going to do. Um, Let's take a look at the scriptures and see where and how and what we're created for. Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And so Psalm 19 says, why uh, why is there a heaven and why is there an earth? It says the reason there's a heaven and earth is to display the glory of God. There's that word, the glory of God. Paul will pick up this theme in Romans at the very beginning and says that God's invisible attributes are being clearly perceived in the things that he made. So God made all of these things. Uh, He made the heavens. He made the earth so that you can see his beauty. And when you see his art, you can trust the artist and give him glory. That's why he made it all. Why are you and I here? Isaiah 43, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, catch this, whom I created for my glory. You and I were made by God for the glory of God. So what does that mean? What is that word glory, the glory of God? God. It's kind of a big Bible word that we say a lot, but we don't often understand what it means. Um, the word glory has this idea of something that has great substance or great weight. Um, also when the Bible talks about the glory of God, it's talking about his personal excellence, his holiness, his love, his beauty. They're substantial, they carry weight, they're heavy, they have depth, they have Power and they shine forth in everything that he's made. And so, as we read the Bible, we begin to see uh, this motivation in the heart of God that is, the glory of God is what drives all that he does throughout all of history, even when he made you, when he made the skies, when he made the seas, when he made everything that we would ascribe glory to him. That his glory would be seen and would be present. Why the Exodus? Why the wandering of God's people through the wilderness in the Old Testament? That's one of the major sort of um, the major stories in our Old Testament. Psalm 106 tells us why that happened. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but they rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them. Why? For his namesake. That he might make known his mighty power. He saved his people. He led them out into the Exodus for his namesake, for his glory. Exodus 7.5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So this is the result of the Exodus. So he did the Exodus so that um, his mighty power would be made known. And he also saved them in the wilderness. He said, I'm going to bring these slaves out and make them my people so that all of Egypt would know me and know that I am God. That's the cause. That's the result. And that's the reason, the glory of God. Even there in the Old Testament. He says in Exodus 14 even that he's going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians. So God has even control over our hearts and what we feel He says, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will chase after you and I will get glory over Pharaoh. He says this in Exodus 9, for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. This is talking about the plagues, the 10 plagues. Why were the the 10 plagues, why did they happen? Why did God do that? God says right here, so that my people would know that I love them and that the Egyptians would see the glory and the power of the one true God. That's why the 10 plagues happened. So the glory of God would be seen. Why did God establish for himself a people in a land? That's another huge story in the Old Testament. That God would save for himself, his own people, for his purpose and his possession. And he would give to them a physical place, a land. Why did he do that? Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the, to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all my peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, Exodus 19 tells us. He says, you, Israel, I want you to be a display to the world of what it's like when I am with a people like this. You are here for the glory of God, he says. You will be a kingdom of priests so that the whole world will see what I'm like and how I relate to my people. Isaiah 49, and he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. He looks at Israel, you're my servant. And what's your purpose? In whom I will be glorified. Why did David kill Goliath? He tells us before he does it in our Old Testament. So that the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. David doesn't kill Goliath so that we can be like uh, so that we can be like David and kill our giants. The story of David and Goliath is that God took someone unlikely, a hero, a savior, and did what the people could not do for themselves, so that God would get the glory. Why did Solomon build the temple? He says, So that when the foreigner comes, they would glorify your name, God. Why did God send his people into captivity? Isaiah 48 For my name's sake I defer mine anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake, and for my own sake I do it for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. He says, my people who have disobeyed me, but I'm not gonna wipe them out. Why? Is it because deep down we're just really good kind of folks? He says, no. He says, because for my name's sake, I will continue to work with ungodly, broken people so that my name will be made great, that I would be glorified. And this is the same hope that we cling to that God will love and use someone like me, a broken person, a sinful person, not because of my great glory, not because of my great achievements or uh, something great that I might contribute, but for his glory and for his purposes. Why did Jesus come? When Jesus first shows up, what do the angels say about him? They say, glory to God in the highest. Remember that at Christmas? What this boy has come to do Is for the glory of God, the angels declare. And when Jesus gives his first sermon, remember as a boy, his parents can't find him. They find him back at the temple and he's preaching a sermon. What does he preach out of his very first sermon? Isaiah 61. This boy is preaching to the religious leaders, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who, are, who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness and the planting of the Lord and here's the last statement that he may be glorified. Jesus says the reason I'm here as he as he preaches this prophetic verse that says I'm the fulfillment of is so that God, may be glorified. Jesus again in John 7 says this about himself. I am the one who seeks the glory of the one who sent him. And Jesus looks toward the cross in John 12, and he says, my soul is troubled. What shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour? He says, no, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. As he sets his face to the cross, as he know what awaits him, he says, I go to the cross for the purpose of the glory of God. Why does Jesus save you? Why does he save us into this wonderful family and call us a part of a church and give us a new identity so that we might be brothers and sisters in Christ? Ephesians 1 says this, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, catch this, to the praise of his glorious grace. You're saved for the glory of God. Not because you did something right or because you figured something out. He says he knew he was going to do this before you were even born for the glory of God. Why does God gather for himself a church? First Peter, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. You're... You're not called to just be a Christian uh, so you just won't go to hell one day when you die. There is that, right? But it's so much more than that. We are called as God's royal priesthood, his personal possession, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who has saved us. When we begin to see this and understand that um, "Our purpose here isn't just for our own selfish ways, isn't just to fulfill some um, secondary things. We begin to see this all over the Bible, and we begin to change how we live our lives. Um, we see in the Bible that the glory of God is even the motivation for even us being moral and being upright. 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. So why are we moral? So the world would see the beauty of God and ascribe him glory. More glory to God, more glory to God, more glory to God. Those that aren't married that are watching this, why should you stay sexually pure? Why do that? How do you even, how do you do that? Why do you do that in a culture, in a world that would say that that is foolish? First Corinthians, flee from sexual immorality. This goes to even those of us who are married, that there's all sorts of sexual temptation out there. Flee from sexual Immorality. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body, the Bible says. Psalm 23, one of my favorites, says, He leads me on paths of righteousness. Why does God do that? For His name's sake, for His glory. Jesus tells us, you want to know how to pray as a Christian? He tells us um, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus says, you pray, Christian, uh, for the name of God to be revered, for the name of God to be treasured, for the name of God to be respected, for the name of God to be glorified in all the earth. Was that how we pray? In fact, that's the reason, or that motivation, is why we do everything. First Corinthians ten thirty one. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So what does this mean? Romans eleven says this. For from him and through him and to him all things are made. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This means that everything is from the glory of God and for the glory of God. Everything beautiful expresses its beauty. In other words, things that are good, things that... um, Are wonderful, they tend to get out. Why? Because things that are glorious are shared. We do this all the time in our lives. When we find something that is truly remarkable and wonderful, we share it with other people. We tell people about it. Good things get out and God says that in the beginning there was God and there was no one else and he is perfect and loving and perfectly beautiful and everything good emanates from him and everything else that has been made by him are but shadows of our God. So we are here because God and his glory made us. We continue to exist so that we can praise him for his glory and give him credit And we continue to exist to tell more and more and more people about this one that has come that is glorious and that in his hand are are just eternal pleasure forever and ever. George Barna is a church statistician and he recently did a survey and he asked the question, is God an important part of your life? And the majority of all the people that answered answered yes. And then he asked the follow-up question about what they value and what they spend time on and what they think about and what they spend their money on. And it's funny because that first question is, is God an important part of your life? So many said yes, but then when asked about all the things that they spend their time, resources, energies on, God almost never came up. So I think for most of us, or maybe a lot of us, We have this idea that God's sort of just up there doing his thing, and we're down here doing ours. And as long as we're good and happy and moral people, God will be good with us. But the Bible paints a different picture. The Bible tells us that everything is about him. And when I think about that, even down to the fact of like what I eat and what I drink and what I care about, who I spend time with, how I talk to them, how I spend my time, how I spend my money, how I parent, how I love my spouse. The Bible, as we just looked at, says all of it is about him. All of those things, how I work, all of these things are all about him and bringing him glory and ascribing to him glory. So what now? What does that mean today? Well, the reason I wanted to just focus in on this is I think that in the midst of the culture that we currently live in, the the state of the world right now, we can tend to get sort of our blinders up And I want us to have a broad, I wanted us to sort of get that 10,000 foot view and realize and have great hope in the fact that God is still in control. And so I want us as believers in Christ to consider him even in the midst of pandemics. He's at work. He's doing something. And he's doing all things for his glory and for our good. Um... I want us to consider him and how we spend our time this week. Are we treasuring him? Are we thinking about him? Are we praying? Are we asking him to move? I want us to consider him and how we speak to our children. I want us to consider the glory of God with how we are loving our neighbor. I want us to consider the glory of God and how we work. Are we working with integrity? I want us to consider the glory of God and how... and. And how we're occupying our time throughout the day. Because what we just saw, just in this quick spread of the entire Bible, is it's all for him. All of it. It's for his namesake. He is our greatest joy. He is our purpose. So I'm going to end with this, Psalm 1611. Um, God's word says, you make known to me the path of life. Boy, I need to hear that today. In your presence, meaning in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. Do you believe that? Not in all these other things. In God's presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He is the source of all of our joy. We are to enjoy him forever. We are to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is our call as Christians. And when we do that, he makes known the path of life to us. And then we get to experience the fullness of joy and knowing him and loving him and serving him and living a life for his glory and our joy. Let's pray together, church. God, we thank you that We can cling to these truths knowing that in all facets of life, God, you are still in charge, that you are in control. You give great hope in the midst of even uncertain circumstances, knowing that it's all for your glory, even when we don't know how to sort it out this side of heaven. And so God, we place our great hope and trust in you. God, I pray that our lives, our actions, our thoughts, our motivations would be marked with the glory of God, knowing that when that is our great aim, that our joy will be made complete. God, forgive us when we seek it out and all these other secondary things, and may we find it in you and in you alone. We love you. We trust you. Our hope is in you. In Jesus' name, amen.